Last Sunday we brought a message to you from the seventh chapter of Luke about a centurion. And I mentioned that there are seven centurions mentioned in the Word of God. And the Word of God speaks favorably about all seven of these. A centurion was a Roman soldier who was in charge of a hundred soldiers under him. The Roman Empire stretched across the land of Palestine during the ministry and life of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there were Roman soldiers most every place. When they came to apprehend the Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, we find that Judas came with the chief priest and soldiers. These be Roman soldiers. It was Roman soldiers that actually nailed the Lord Jesus Christ to the cross, put nails in his hands and nails in his feet. So Romans had a presence in that land in that particular day. And we find these centurions who were in charge of a hundred men were there to be sure that order was kept and that there was no plans for an insurrection, no plans to disturb anything. And the Jews were not planning to try to, to you know, bring themselves out from under the bondage they were in with the Roman Empire. So all seven of these men in the scriptures are spoken of again in very favorable terms. We saw last week in Luke chapter 7 where the centurion had a servant, not a child, not a son, but a servant. No kin to him, but a servant that was sick and ready to die, but he was near to him. And we saw some of the things that was displayed in the life of this centurion, how he sent the elders of the Jews, to beseech Jesus, not to demand or command him, but to beseech him to come and to deliver his servant. Then he sent friends to meet Jesus when he got close by to tell him that he was not worthy for him to come under his roof. And he was not worthy to go unto him. We see the sense of feeling of unworthiness does not exist in the wicked and the evil. The sense of unworthiness is a spirit or a feeling that a born-again child of God has. One must be born of the Spirit to see that they feel that they're unworthy of God's consideration and blessings in their lives. So we see this centurion, although he was a Gentile, and he was a Roman, and he was a soldier, and his background was one of a country steeped in idolatry and immorality, and a pagan background to say the least, yet displayed the fruits of the Spirit. He displayed the evidences of a gracious state. How could that be? Because, see, in the, prior to Christ's coming, the only nation on this earth that had a formal way of worship were the Jewish people. The Jews, the nation of Israel, was the only nation that had prophets, the only nation that had a priesthood, the only nation that had a temple, the only nation that brought forth offerings and sacrifices to God. The only nation of all the nations that existed in that day, they were the only nation. All the other nations were left to themselves in their darkness of their understanding. So how in the world did this centurion in Luke chapter 7, how in the world did he have such a wonderful, wonderful spirit that only God could give? <laughs> because God gave it to him. He's one of the Lord's people. And all these other things have to deal with worship and service, but they don't, have to de they don't deal with relationship. I want to take a look at another centurion this morning, found in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, there's a man by the name of Cornelius. Cornelius is in a town called Caesarea. Now, there was a Caesarea and a Caesarea Philippi. They're two different places. 
It was in Matthew 16 at Caesarea Philippi that the Lord asked the disciples a question, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? That's a different location. That was inland. Caesarea is a city along the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea. It was named Caesarea after Augustus Caesar. And it was strategically located there from the standpoint of ships going back and forth from Rome, Italy, down there to Caesarea to bring supplies, one thing and another, but also communications, etc. So in this particular place, which was the capital of Judea, now, of course, Rome was the capital of Italy, but in this land here, they had capitals in certain geographical areas. Caesarea was the capital of Judea. And in this place, there's a man named Cornelius, and he's a centurion of the Italian band. We're told exactly which band of soldiers he was associated with, which tells me that the soldiers in uh, Cornelius, uh, their roots were actually definitely from Italy, and they were moved down there. This is their duty and responsibility to live there, once again, to be sure that everything stayed peaceful and in order. Now, we're going to learn some things about this man. It's very important. In fact, chapter 10 in the book of Acts is a pivotal chapter, a pivotal for, uh, point in terms of the church moving forward. If you remember in Acts 1-8, before the Lord ascended into heaven, he met with his disciples. And he told them, he says, Ye shall be witnesses unto me, first of all in Jerusalem and Judea, and then in Samaria, and then to the othermost parts of the earth. And that brings in the Gentile people. Now, the apostle Peter was one of those apostles, of course, that this commission was given to. And the apostle Peter is somebody that Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom of heaven to, recorded again in Matthew chapter 16. Remember when the Lord asked that question, who do you mean to say that I, the son of man, am? Well, they all got the wrong answer. But then he asked the disciples specifically, and the apostle Peter said, we believe thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied by saying, and thou art Simon Barjona, and blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee. Now notice here. He tells us what did not reveal this unto Peter. It was not flesh and blood. It was not an associate. It was not a friend. It was not a mother. It was not a father. It was not a child. It was not a son or a daughter. It wasn't a neighbor. It wasn't a preacher. All, every one of those are flesh and blood. But flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee. What? But my Father which art in heaven. Every person that comes to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, will believe that because it's been revealed to them by the Heavenly Father in the point of the new birth when they're born of the Spirit of God and the divine nature of God is planted on the inside. So blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. I'll say this, and I could call each and every name here this morning, blessed are you, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto you, but my Father which art in heaven. He said, unto thee, Peter, do I give the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose in heaven shall be loosed on earth. Here we find a heaven and earth connection. Here we find that the ministry of the apostles, and Peter in particular, was going to be one that had heavenly authority with it. So how did Peter use these keys? In Acts chapter 2, you have the day of Pentecost, when the Apostle Peter, who is a Jewish apostle, preaching to a Jewish congregation about a Jewish Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, we find he used the key of the kingdom to open up the truth of the sacrificial death, the life and sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 8 in the book of Acts, we find the Apostle Peter is heavily involved in a place called Samaria. 
And here in Acts chapter 10, the Apostle Peter is going to be heavily involved once again with somebody that represents the uttermost parts of the earth. So we see how the gospel moved from the Jews to the Samaria and into the Gentile people in the book of Acts through the first 10 chapters of this book. The book of Acts is a book of church history. So the Lord is using the Apostle Peter. He used those keys, those keys to open up these things, you see. All right, so we find here in Acts chapter 10, living in Caesarea is a man, a Roman soldier, a Gentile with a pagan background, but yet he's displaying the fruits of the Spirit. He's displaying some of the strongest evidences of being born of the Spirit that you could ever have. In fact, I don't know of a single person in the Word of God that has as many evidences in their life that they've been born of the Spirit of God than Cornelius. Even more so, say, than Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, any of those men. Notice what it says about him. He was a devout man. That word devout means devoted. It means pious and godly. That's the kind of man that he was. Does that describe the wicked of this world? Does that describe the evil of this world? Does that describe those who have not been born of the Spirit of God? I submit to you it does not. That's the kind of man that he was. He was a man who gave alms to the people. Alms, acts of charity and kindness. The life of this man was one in which he looked upon the lives of others. And when he saw a need, he tried to supply that need. Cornelius is the kind of man I love living right beside me as a neighbor. I'd love to have him on the right side and on the left side. I'd love to have him above me if I was in an apartment and below me if I was in an apartment. I'd just love to have a whole lot of Cornelius on my street. That's what I'm saying to you. Cornelius was a man who gave alms to the people. He was a man who feared God with all of his house. Now that's not a, a trait of the wicked. In the third chapter of Romans, verse 18, Paul is given a description in the third chapter of Romans of man's depravity, and man's human carnal nature. And in verse 18 he says, there's no fear of God before their eyes. That doesn't describe Cornelius. Cornelius being described as a man that does have the fear of God before his eyes. And not only him, but him and all of his house. That means his family, it means his servants. That tells me that he spoke about God a great deal. That tells me that he had a house that was godly, and he demanded everybody in this house, you know, as long as it's under his roof, as they say, uh, would do the things that he did. And we'll see that a little bit later unfold, I believe. He was a man who feared God with all of his house. So why is that in there if that's not true? <laughs> of course it is. And he prayed to God always. Prayer is communicating with God. That's what prayer is. Prayer is the ability to talk to God. And I was thinking about that this morning. Uh, is anybody here this morning, including myself, really feel the strong impact that we should when we consider what prayer really is? That you can talk to the Creator God that you can talk 24-7 to God who spoke the world into existence. You can speak to the eternal God, the immutable God, the everlasting God, again, who created the heaven and the earth, the moon, the sun, the stars, the universe, all the universes, uh, the galaxies, whatever out there. He created all, and yet through prayer you can talk to him. You can't talk to the President of the United States. <laughs> you can't talk to the governor. You can't even talk to the mayor hardly. I mean, you know, I'm not saying it's impossible, <laughs> but just try. 
and see how much success you have. But you can talk to God 24-7. You can talk to God in your sleep. You can talk to God when you wake up, when you go to bed, behind the wheel of a car, wherever you might be. You can talk to God, the creator God. Isn't that just mind-blowing, so to speak? It's hard to wrap my mind around something like that, that I can communicate with heaven. I can communicate with God. That's what prayer is all about. He prayed to God always, not just every now and then. You know, some people only pray to God when they're in trouble. That's a fact. They only pray to God when something seriously is wrong with them. Then they'll pray and they'll ask other people to pray. And that's the only time you ever hear them talk about prayer is when they really need him. How many people talk about a spare tire until they have a flat, right? But you wouldn't want to be without it. You want to be sure you got one back there and it's pumped up, it's ready to go. You never know when you might need it. And that's how some people treat the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I'm glad he's there when I need him. Tell me what day this past week you didn't need him. Tell me what past day, uh, day of this past week that you didn't need God. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says, Let us come boldly to the throne of grace, we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Psalms 46, 1. For God is a present help in trouble. A present help in trouble. He's our refuge and present help in trouble. Brother, you need him every day. You need him just to be able to breathe. You're breathing oxygen this morning. God supplies. You're living today because God still allows the sun to shine and the rain to come down. Isaiah chapter 55, he says, As the rain and snow come down from heaven and water the earth, it gives seed to the soil and bread to the eater. All God's got to do is turn the faucet off. That's all he's got to do to get our attention. Sometimes that's what he does to get our attention. So this is the kind of man we're talking about. Now, two more things are said about him later on. I'm going to go ahead and pull them out now. One, three men are going to go to Peter. And they're going to tell Peter that Cornelius is a just man. That doesn't describe the wicked. The wicked are not just. He's a just man and hath good report of all the nation of the Jews. Now, he's a Roman. But yet he's treated the Jews with such kindness, giving alms to the people with such kindness... It's just like the centurion in Luke chapter 7. Remember that? He sent the chief elders of the Jews, those that he has dominion over, he sent them to beseech Jesus. And when they got there, they besought Jesus. And they said unto Jesus, This man whom we come to represent is worthy. He is worthy for you to come. And Jesus came with them. This man Cornelius, he had good report of the Jews among the entire nation. And then we find that Cornelius is going to have his prayers answered. I want to notice just a few highlights here this morning in Acts chapter 10. Let's take a look at verse 3. He saw in a vision evidently about the ninth hour of the day an angel of God coming into him and saying to him, Cornelius. When he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? Even though it's an angel, he knows it's come from heaven. So he addressed him as Lord. And he said to him, Thy prayers and thine alms have come up for memorial before God. Not just his prayers, but his prayers and his alms. God heard his prayers, he saw his alms. Alms is activity. Alms is, is again, it's charity, as Brother Tim spoke to us last week. It is love in action. He heard and he saw. He says, thy prayers and thine alms have come up before me for a memorial. They're going to be answered, Cornelius. 
Now, we're not told what he prayed for. We're not told that. We're not given the specifics of his prayers. But I think we might have a little indication as we read just a little bit further here. And now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodges one Simon a tanner whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. I just kind of got a feeling that Cornelius said, Lord, guide me today. Lord, lead me today. Uh, Lord, direct my footsteps today. Help me to know how to go. Help me make the right decisions. Lord, grant me knowledge. Grant me understanding. Grant me wisdom. James said, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth all men liberally. When you read the Psalms, there's Psalm after Psalm after Psalm where David prays for the Lord to lead him step by step along the journey. I love the story in Genesis chapter 24 when Abraham sends his servant to get a bride for his son Isaac. And we find when he gets there and he sees how the Lord has blessed him to find the right woman to take back to be the bride for Isaac. He says, I being in the way, the Lord has led me to the house of my master's brethren. <laughs> I believe this is the house of the master's brethren. You're here this morning. How did you get here this morning? I'm not talking about the means of transportation. <laughs> As you get to be in this place this day to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed concerning his sovereign grace. I'm being in the way, the way of prayer, the way of providence. I'm being in the way. The Lord hath led me to the house of my master's brother. Did you ask him to lead you? Did you ask him to guide you? I trust that you did. I, I try to pray that prayer every single day. I may word it one way one day and another way another day. But Lord, I need my footsteps directed. In the 119th Psalm, we find where he says, verse 103, Thy word is a light unto my path, as a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. God's written word will do that for you. Thy prayers and memorial, oh, and arms have come up for a memorial before me. I've heard your prayers, I've seen your actions, I've seen your life, and now I'm going to answer them. And you send men to Joppa. We notice that Cornelius does not hesitate. Cornelius doesn't ponder it. God has spoken. If God has spoken, then you just need to do what God said, right? So he sends three people. He sends two servants and a devout soldier who was near unto him and ministered unto him. Now, we're told that Cornelius was a devout man, and he sends a devout soldier. Then the Bible could have just said he sent two servants and a soldier, couldn't it? And we'd have read that and been okay with it. So why did he tell us he sent a devout soldier? See, the Bible tells us evil communications corrupt good manners. The Bible tells us that he that walked the wise men shall be wise. Solomon was the, supposedly the wisest man who ever lived. And that's the standpoint of the wisdom God gave him. He says, wise men, you know, walk, people walk with wise men shall be wise. But a companion of fools shall be destroyed. A wise man wants wise people around him. A wise man, a devout man, wants to be in the midst of devout people. He wants to be around people that have the same goals, the same values. Be around people that have uh, the same mindset from the standpoint of their the worship of God and service of God and their desire to, you know, be committed to serving the Lord in his church and kingdom. He has a soldier. He's a devout soldier. Not an ordinary soldier, not any kind of soldier. He's a devout soldier. 
So what did Cornelius do? Well, immediately he obeys. Now, Joppa is about 30 miles, first of all, uh, south of Caesarea. Caesarea is about 65 miles northwest of Jerusalem, and Joppa is about 30 miles south of uh, Caesarea. Now, you're familiar with Joppa, I guess. Hopefully you are, because Joppa is that place where Jonah went to when he fled from God. Remember that? God gave him a command to go to Nineveh and preach the gospel there in Nineveh, or preach his word there in Nineveh. And we find where Jonah didn't want to do it. So Jonah went down to Joppa, and lo and behold, there was a ship. It's just like it was right there waiting on him. <laughs> I'm sure old Jonah thought, boy, what a lucky break this is. Man, I couldn't ask the thing any better. I go down here and the Joppa, and there's a ship already. It's got a place on it, and I got enough money to buy my ticket. And he gets on it. He's so relaxed. He gets on that ship. He's so relaxed. He's out there on the water and sailing along, and then a great storm comes. And where is Jonah at? He's in the bottom of that ship asleep. It's amazing how some people can be so complacent <laughs> and so at ease in disobedience. That, that bugs me a lot of times. I mean, I just can't understand it. When they're in direct opposition to God's will and they know it. And yet they can just go to sleep. But God's going to wake him up. <laughs> God's going to wake him up. I tell you, it was always better for me when I was growing up to wake up on my own than for my daddy had to wake me up. That just didn't go well. Uh, that just didn't, especially if I didn't, my feet didn't hit the floor immediately. When he called my name and told me to get up. <laughs> I just learned it just better to jump out whether one, two or not. Anyway, Joppa is where he goes. He sends those men to Joppa about 30 miles. That's going to be about a day and a half journey. It's going to take two days to get there. So these three take off to go. Then we find the, the narrative changes now over here to Joppa where Peter is at. Now, I like to speak from time to time how the Lord works on both ends of a line. He's working over here with Cornelius, but he's also going to be working over here with Peter. Now, we've already seen so far how he's working with Cornelius. I want to remind you one more time that Cornelius is not a Jew. Cornelius is a Gentile. Cornelius is the first man in, on biblical record that's going to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and obey the gospel, and being baptized, so don't want to jump ahead. But he's not a Jew, he's a Gentile. He's never made one sacrificial offering in his life from the standpoint of a sheep, or an oxen, or whatever. But in the Bible, the Bible teaches me that prayers oftentimes are referred to as offerings and sacrifices to God, and he's made a lot of those. He's made a lot of those. So Peter's over here in Joppa. Now there's two men by the name of Simon over here at Joppa. One is Simon the Tanner and one is Simon Peter. Now I told you before, uh, everybody had just one name back in that day, so you had to have something attached to the name to distinguish them from people of other names, the same name. So you got two Simons, one is a Tanner and one is Peter. And they're staying together in the same house. But they're not there for Simon the Tanner, they're there for Simon Peter. Peter goes up on top of the house, rooftop, at the twelfth hour, at the, excuse me, the sixth hour, which would be twelve o'clock. Now, I might fail to mention a little earlier, we've talked about uh, Cornelius praying, and it says he was praying, at, had his trance at the ninth hour, 
If you go to Acts chapter 3, you'll find where Peter and John go up to the temple to pray, and they pray at the ninth hour. The ninth hour is designated as the hour of prayer. About 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, I don't have a designated point of time to pray. I don't try to pray at 9 in the morning or 12 or 3 myself. I do try to pray in the morning I get up. I try to pray at night when I go to bed. I try to pray at three meals. That's five prayers a day if I don't pray anywhere in between. But the way my life's been in the last few months, I try to pray everywhere all the time. <laughs> I've said this a number of times. You ought to have a minimum of five prayers a day, but I'd say probably six or seven because you've got to have those emergency prayers. You've got to have those prayers when you just cry out to God and say, Lord, help me. It's a two-word prayer, but I find those two-word prayers to be very effectual in the Word of God. I find where Peter said, save me, and the Lord saved him from drowning. I find the woman cried out, Lord, help me. He healed her daughter that was grievously ill, near death. The most effectual prayers I find in the Word of God are these short prayers, these rapid-fire prayers. You put all them in there, I'd say on most days, most people ought to pray eight or ten times a day at least. That's why, Peter, or that's why Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and said, pray without ceasing. So he's on top of the rooftop. I imagine on top of that rooftop, Peter was able to see the stars. He was able to, well, not the stars, but he was able to see the sun and the clouds. And, you know, that was, that was his place. That was where he went to be by himself, I believe. That's where he went, where he could have some, uh, you know, uh, tranquility, where he could have some serenity, where he could just be away from the noise, the hustle and bustle of life, one thing and another. That was his place. Everybody needs a place like that. He's on top of that rooftop. It's 12 o'clock. And the Bible says Peter was hungry. I know most people get hungry about 12. I see it when the clock gets 12 and I'm still preaching. <laughs> At least you think you are. But anyway... Peter's up there at 12. He's hungry. And the Lord's going to do something here. He's going to let a sheet down from heaven, knit in four corners. And in this sheet that's let down from heaven, all manner of four-footed beasts, wild beasts, creeping things, fowls of the air, etc., are going to be in this sheet. So why in the world has God given him such an out-of-the-ordinary supernatural vision on this occasion here? Because he's a Jew. And Cornelius is a Gentile. And for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, the Gentiles were separated from the Jewish people from the commonwealth of Israel. They were not the recipients of God's covenants, his promises, his manner and way of worship, the prophets, the priesthood, all that belonged to one nation and one nation only, and that was the Jewish nation, the children of Israel. But all through the Old Testament... When you read it very closely, you're going to find where the Lord was bringing in a, pit, uh, a little bit here and a little bit there. At some point down the road, the Gentiles are going to be brought in. We're told in Ephesians chapter 2 that when the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified on Calvary and that temple was ripped from top to bottom, we find the Gentiles no longer uh, are aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. They now will be brought into the gospel fold uh, according to God's own time schedule. Cornelius is a Gentile, Peter is a Jew, but interesting, it's been 10 years since Pentecost. Been 10 years, 8 to 10 years since Pentecost. So why would the Lord still have to tell Peter this when he told Peter before he left this world to go and teach all nations and preach the gospel to every creature? 
Go and teach all nations. That means people outside the Jewish people. Why is it taking so long? Well, God has a timetable. Remember, it went from the Jews in Jerusalem to the Samaritans in Acts 8. Now we got the Gentiles over here in Acts chapter 10. The other most parts of the earth are now coming into the picture. Been about eight to ten years, Peter. Why are you so shocked about this? He lets that net down, excuse me, that sheet down three times. Now, Peter's used to threes, isn't he? What did the Lord tell Peter when Peter says, I'll follow whatsoever thou goest? He says, Peter, before the cock crows twice, be denied me thrice. Three different times. Three is the number of witnesses in the word of God. Out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. He let this sheet down three times, and inside of it is all manner of full-footed beasts, wild beasts, fowls of the air, creeping things of this earth. And he tells Peter, he says, rise, kill, and eat. Apparently the Lord didn't mind people eating animal meat or eating meat. Because he tells the apostle Peter right here to rise, kill, and eat. Peter says, not so, Lord. For nothing common unclean is ever in my mouth. Oh, Peter is a true Orthodox Jew. Not so, Lord. Now, it's all right to say, Lord. It's all right to say no. But it's never right to say no, Lord. Always remember that. Not so, Lord. Now, this is a little bit different than Peter's reaction in Luke chapter 5, wasn't it? Remember Luke chapter 5, when the Lord comes down to the Sea of Galilee, and there's two ships, one belongs to Peter, and he tells Peter to cast out just a little, and Peter does. He then taught the people from the ship. Then he tells Peter to launch out into the deep. We already know they toiled all night, and they hadn't caught anything. He says, Peter, launch out into the deep. Here's what Peter said. He said, Lord, we've toiled all night and have caught nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, we'll do it. Now, you see, Peter just kind of thought out the previous actions, didn't he? We toiled all night. He's thinking, you want me to launch out into the deep? That goes contrary to my experience as a fisherman. That goes contrary to everything I've been trained for and learned as a fisherman. You catch fish in the Sea of Galilee at, uh, at nighttime in shallow water. It's now daytime, and you want me to go out into the deep? He thinks it out. But then he says, but nevertheless, at thy word, we'll do it. This time, Peter just reacts. He says, not so, Lord. For nothing common and unclean is ever to enter into my mouth. See, the Lord gave a list when he, of all his creation, of all the animals of his creation. God made two lists, clean and unclean. And they were not to eat the unclean. Peter, according to Peter's own testimony, has never eaten anything unclean. Nothing common and unclean is ever to my mouth. The Lord said, call not that... that common which I have cleansed. So what's the Lord saying here? He's giving Peter a picture that the unclean can only be cleansed for consumption by me. Call nothing common or unclean which I have cleansed. Notice he didn't say call not that common unclean which has been cleansed but what I have cleansed. By nature we're common and unclean, aren't we? By nature, we are common and unclean. If anybody understands that, old Baptists do. 
because they get a dose of man's depravity to teach us on that on a pretty regular basis. By nature, we have a wicked and evil nature. By nature, we're dead in trespassing sins until being born of the Spirit of God, and we're unclean. Over here, in the book of Titus 3 and 5, he says, Not my works of righteousness which we've done, but according to his mercy, he hath saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. When a person is regenerated, he's washed. When a person is regenerated, born in the Spirit of God, he is cleansed. Only God can do that. <laughs> Call not that common unclean what I have cleansed. He's letting the Apostle Peter know these old Gentiles, which I've always, as Jews, considered to be unclean, they're not unclean. I got a people among them, and I have cleansed them. He let it down, brought it back up three times. Then the Bible says, while Peter doubted within himself, notice the language. Now, while Peter doubted himself what this vision which he had seen should mean, behold, the men which were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate and called and asked whether Simon, which was surnamed Peter, was lodged there. Now, while Peter thought on the vision, the Spirit said unto him, Behold, three men seek thee. Arise, therefore, and get thee down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Now, Peter's had this experience right now at this moment. He doesn't quite understand. He knows the Lord has said, Don't call common unclean what I have cleansed. So God has cleansed. He shouldn't call them common unclean. This sheet is put down and brought up three times. There's a knock on the door, and there's three men. God always gives us, gives us the evidence we stand in need of, does he not? And the Spirit said, now in the beginning the angel came and talked to him. Now the Spirit talks to him, says, arise and go with the men that hear knocking at the door. These three men have come from Cornelius. Arise and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Well, I got a question here. Earlier I found where Cornelius sent them. Now the Lord he said he sent them. Well, both statements are true, aren't they? Because the Lord commanded Peter to do it, excuse me, Cornelius to do it, and Cornelius obeyed, as a good soldier always does. He obeyed, and he sent the men. So while Cornelius sent the men, in reality it was God who sent the men through Cornelius. I have sent the men. Then Peter went down to men which were sent to him from Cornelius and said, Behold, I am he whom you seek. What is the cause wherever you are come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, and one that feareth God, and of good report among all the nation of the Jews, was warned from God by an holy angel to send for thee into his house and to hear words of thee. That's why we're here. Then called he them in and lodged them. And here's one more trait then we find about good old brother Cornelius. He was a man given to hospitality, wasn't he? He called them in, never met them before. Sometimes people think it's pretty odd and strange among the old Baptists that when we have a meeting, we may have visitors from other primitive Baptist churches come, maybe they come from out of town, and we would actually take somebody in our house that we've never met before. To the world, that is strange, isn't it? But my mother and daddy, I'll tell you, they were a they were a couple that were given the hospitality. 
they had a guest book like many people do. And I got it out there when they passed away. And they had, I'd forgotten now the number. It was a big number. It seemed like it was 80 and 90 different families. And one thing, the most, a lot of them preachers who had stayed there multiple times. And I know for a fact, there were many times they had never met them until that day. But it's just something that you have in common with somebody who comes to a meeting like that. You know, it's, it's that fellowship that's so unique and so special. It's that fellowship that you enjoy one with another. And even though, how many times have you ever done that been your experience? And just as soon as you're around them good, it's time you sit down and have a cup of coffee with one another. You say, you know, it just seems like I've known you all my life. <laughs> just seems like I've known you all my life. Because you're both sinners and you both believe in the grace of God. <laughs> You both believe in God's saving grace. You both believe in God's sovereignty and you believe in the God of the Bible. And you have all that in common. It's just like even though you just met one another, you just have seen one another face to face, but it seemed like you've just known them all your life. Now, to have that experience, you've got to do what Peter did. Peter never met these folks before, never seen them. One of them is a soldier. Two servants and a soldier, never met them before. He takes them in his house and lodges them. I mentioned this to you before, but I'm going to say it again. I have found people have short memories. It's like this preacher got having another preacher to come preach. He's going to preach four times. And he says, uh, don't worry about what you preached the fourth time. You just preach what you did the first time because they'll be already forgotten that one by that time. I'm afraid there's more truth in that statement than I'd like to believe. But I was riding down the road one day and trust me, when you're on an eight or ten hour trip going down the road, you got a lot of time to think. A lot of time to pray. <laughs> and I began to think about every state I've been blessed to go to in my ministry. Been blessed to preach at over 300 some churches during my 50 years in the ministry. 25 different states. And I began to think of all the saints of God along the way that took me in and gave me a bed, gave me a meal, and even gave me the keys to the car on many occasions. I'll come up with right 150. I come right at 150. Now that's some of the blessings that God has seen fit to bestow upon this unworthy sinner that stands before you here this morning. I remember growing up, it was just common for my mother and daddy to take people in. We're commanded in God's word, Romans 12, 13. It says, given unto the necessity of the saints and be given to hospitality. In the book of 1 Peter 4, 9, he says, let hospitality rule and do it not grudgingly. You know, maybe you're in the house and this has never happened in my house. Let me qualify this right now. But maybe the husband is sitting and he's had a tired, long day. And he's sitting in his lazy boy. He says to the wife, you bring me a cup of coffee, honey. And she says, well, I reckon I can. I guess I can if you want me to bad enough. How good is that coffee going to be? You going to enjoy that cup of coffee with that kind of reaction? 
Oh, she got up. She went and got the coffee, brought it. There it is. <laughs> I don't think I'd enjoy that cup a bit. She did what he asked, but she did it grudgingly. Oh, we can reverse it. The wife says to the husband, do you mind taking out the trash? Aren't you up? I am, but I'm trying to cook and wash dishes. Well, I guess I can. If you want it out right now or later, I'll go right, right away. Okay, I guess I can. So he takes the trash out. He says, use hospitality without grudging. You do something like you're supposed to do, have a good attitude about it. <laughs> it's like Paul says to Corinthians, he says, he that soweth so, uh, so sparingly shall reap sparingly, he that soweth bountifully shall reap bountifully. That every man so purpose his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly, or necessity for God loves a cheerful giver. We find Cornelius meet, he takes these men in. And then the next morning they travel. I want you to notice what Cornelius has been doing. Let's look at verse 24. And the morrow after they entered into Caesarea, Cornelius waited for them, and he called together his kinsmen and near friends. The Lord didn't tell him to do that. He did it on his own. He calls his near kinsmen and his friends because he's anticipating something wonderful, something great. The Lord has told him to send for Peter. Peter's going to tell him what to do. And so he's gotten his near kinsmen and friends together. And when Peter gets there, they got a whole house full of people. <laughs> now, you know, you know where evangelism really starts? It starts in the home. It starts with your family. It starts with your children, your kinfolks. And it branches out to your co-workers and friends, one thing and another. And you know, I've thought about this many times. You know, January 1 starts, it goes through December 31st. We got a 12 months, an entire year to invite somebody to come to church. And if everybody was successful in getting one person to church in 365 days, 12 months, 52 weeks, we would double. You know, that doesn't really seem unreasonable to me. It really doesn't seem that improbable that that could happen. Cornelius is the great example of this. So we're going to have to skip on down here quite a bit. But I want to get over here. When Peter gets there, Cornelius tells him about his experience, one thing and another. And we find when Peter... Uh, when Cornelius tells him about all this, he said, Immediately, therefore, I sit to thee, and thou hast well done, that thou art come. Now, therefore, we're all here present before God to hear all things that's commanded thee of God. Now, here is a model church. Here is a model church. First of all, we notice we're all here. We're all here. That's what a model church is. Everybody theoretically shows up. Everybody comes to the house of God. Everybody puts aside the things that could hinder them, disturb them, one thing or another, and they deny themselves, take up their cross, and they come to the house of God. We're all here. Model church. And we're here to hear whatsoever God has commanded you to tell us. Whatever's on your mind, whatever's in your heart. 
when we got a sign out here, and on that sign is never what next week's message is going to be. And you know why it's not on there? Because I don't even know what it's going to be. So how are we going to put it out a week ahead of time if I don't know what it's going to be? But in trying to study the Word of God and pray to God, I trust the Lord guides me and directs me into the message that He'd have me to bring to the congregation. But you know, the Apostle Paul told Timothy to preach the Word, be instant in season, out of season. He told the elders at Ephesus, he said, Take heed unto thyself and to the flock which the Holy Ghost has made you the overseers thereof, to feed the flock of God which is among you. You know, for the preacher to be able to carry that out, guess what? The sheep have to show up at feeding time. The sheep have to show up at feeding time. How are the sheep going to feed if they don't show up at feeding time? I just threw that in. <laughs> We're all here to hear what some of God has commanded you to speak to. Here's the model church. Here is Peter's reaction. This is a doctrinal point. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth. I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. Now Peter gets the message. Now Peter understands what, what that sheet that was let down three times was all about. He says, God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. In every nation. No matter what nation it is, he that feareth God what, and worketh righteousness is accepted him. He didn't fear God and work right to become a child of God. He fears God and works right because he is a child of God. It's the evidence of his gracious state. And Peter sees here in Cornelius a Jew, excuse me, a Gentile, a pagan background, but a Roman soldier belonging to the, to the Romans. And yet here's a man that fears God always. Uh, here's a man who fears God with all his house. Here's a man that prays to God always. Here's a man that's devout. Here's a man. They gave alms to the people. Here's a man that had good report among all the Jews. Here's a man that when Peter gets there, he's got his near kinsmen, he's got his friends all gathered together. And here's the apostle Peter there to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to him because he says, we're here to hear what God has commanded for you, what God has commanded for you to speak unto us. Peter then goes into a wonderful message about the grace of God. He goes into a wonderful message about the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the first time Cornelius has ever heard the gospel of the Savior. Here's the first time he's ever heard a gospel message in his life. And Cornelius and his household obey the gospel and are baptized. And to me, this is kind of interesting in our closing remarks. As Peter is preaching this message, the Holy Spirit interrupts him. When Peter, in Acts chapter 17, excuse me, Matthew 17, you're going to find where the apostle Peter had been talking to the tax collectors and he comes back to where Jesus is, and as he starts to talk to Jesus about it, Jesus interrupts him. On the mountain of transfiguration, you're going to find the apostle Peter builds three tabernacles. He built one, he said, let us, excuse me, let us build three tabernacles. One for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. 
And as he's talking like that, guess what? God the Father interrupts him. He was interrupted by God the Father. He's interrupted by God the Son. And here in Acts chapter 10, he's interrupted by God the Holy Spirit. I wouldn't care if God interrupted me here this morning. <laughs> now, I'd rather you not interrupt me. <laughs> but if God wants to interrupt me, so be it, right? <laughs> and as God interrupted Peter preaching this message, the Holy Spirit came down upon them as Gentiles. And you have here a Gentile Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, you had the Jewish Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down and, you know, it settled upon them as uh, cloven tongues of fire. And you had 3,000 that were united with the church that day and were baptized. And here you have one taking place among the Gentiles and Cornelius. As I said, I'd love to have a Cornelius beside me on both sides that to have him as a neighbor. The point being here this morning, at one point, how in the world could this man have such a heart when he was a Roman Gentile with a pagan background? Because that's the kind of heart God gives. And God gives it to every heir of promise, every object of his love. That's what's so amazing about the grace of God. That's what's so miraculous about the grace of God. As I've said on more than one occasion in times past, if you don't see God's grace to be amazing, if you don't see God's grace to be miraculous, you haven't seen God's grace. Is God's grace miraculous in your experience? Has it been amazing in your experience? I, I think you would say it has. It certainly has been in mine. Here's an, a story of another wonderful, wonderful centurion separate and part totally and completely from the Jewish people that God shows. See, God gives us so many examples of the operation of his grace if we just look for them. And he gives us an example here in Cornelius, and he gave us an example over here in Luke chapter 7.